One of the things I always try to stress to parents is that being a kid comes first. That's their job. Their job is to have fun. Their job is to go to school. Their job is to see their friends. Having cancer is a side gig, if you will. You know, that's that comes second. And I think we always have to remember that, that without the beauty and the happiness in life and without those wonderful moments, the rest of it doesn't matter. Welcome to Difficult Conversations, lessons I learned as an ICU physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Way. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you. Well, welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. This is Dr. Anthony Orsini, your host today and every week moving forward. Now, if you've listened to this podcast before, you know that I promise my audience two things each and every week. Number one, to feel inspired. And number two, to have valuable communication techniques that you can go and take home with you the next time you have a difficult conversation. And I am very certain that I will keep my promise today. Today, we have Dr. Michelle Nyer. Dr. Nyer is a board-certified pediatric hematologist, oncologist, and integrative medicine physician. In 2005, she completed her pediatric residency at Schneider Children's Hospital at North Shore University in Long Island. She continued her training in New York City, where she finished her hematology-oncology fellowship at Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital at New York Presbyterian Columbia in 2008. After practicing pediatric hematology and oncology at Gorya Children's Hospital in Morristown, New Jersey, she elected to further her training and recently completed an integrative medicine fellowship through the University of Arizona Integrative Medicine Department. Dr. Nyer has a strong interest in the medical humanities, especially narrative medicine. She is passionate about teaching and is a Breaking Bad News instructor for the Orsini Way. In April 2020, Dr. Nyer started Olive Tree Integrative Health. Olive Tree Integrative Health's mission is to provide quality integrative medicine care which honors each individual's story. Dr. Nyer is passionate about her goal to help children and young adults who are dealing with chronic or life-threatening medical illnesses, as well as those children who have multiple symptoms but do not yet have a diagnosis. Dr. Nyer and Olive Tree Integrative Health understands that disease is multifaceted and healing includes support of her patients and the caregivers as well. She resides in New Jersey and in her personal time, is an avid reader, loves to practice yoga, spend time with her family, and recently started knitting. Well, welcome, Michelle. It's so nice to have you on my new podcast. Thanks, Tony. It's great to be here. Well, you know, we've never met in person, but we've been doing Breaking Bad News together. You've been an instructor for the Orsini Way for several years, and I try to get to most of the uh, sessions, but our paths never really crossed. We didn't get to do the same one together. But everyone from the very beginning, talked so nicely about you and said you had so much to offer the young residents. You were really passionate about communication, just like me. 
and just received constant accolades about your wisdom and how well you teach and everything that you say. So I was really excited to finally get to interview you. When I decided to take this leap for this podcast, your name was one of the first names that came up because I think you'll be easily be able to teach our audience something about communication, especially in your field. One of the premises of this podcast is that if you can have that conversation with someone about cancer or death, then pretty much the rest of the conversations in your life will be relatively easy. So today I'm really excited for the audience to hear your story and to really learn something about communication from you. So thank you for coming on. I know you're very busy these days. I am, but I really appreciate the compliment. It's a big honor to be here. I think what you've done is amazing and what you're doing is incredible. And it it means a lot to participate in this. You know, I have a a personal story that I've shared on the previous episode about why I became passionate about communication. It really started when I witnessed a physician tell someone that their baby died in a very cold manner, and it profoundly changed me. And that was when I was a fellow in neonatology way back when. And so everyone seems to have a story. And and I want to, if you don't mind sharing with the audience, hear yours. I'd, I'd like to know why you chose hematology oncology and maybe a story about what really moved you either with a patient or what made you so passionate about teaching communication to the young doctors. So I think in hindsight, the seeds of Hemonc were back even in childhood. I mentioned to you that I've been an avid reader. And as a child, there was a book I read about a girl with leukemia. And I think I must have read that story over and over and over a dozen times. And it just always stuck with me. I started pediatric residency and thought for sure I was going to do general pediatrics. I just wanted to do good preventive care. And sure enough, the best laid plans always change. So I was a resident and I met a young girl. I still remember her and think of her fondly. She had a solid tumor. She was probably about seven or eight when I met her. And she used to walk around, her and her mother walked around with a pin that said, cancer sucks. And I just thought it was amazing that this young kid could speak so loudly to what was going on in her life and just be so clear about it. But yet at the same time, be so positive and so motivated. She started a jewelry shop, I guess you could call it. And she was selling jewelry to raise money to support cancer research. And I still have the necklace she sold me. She was just always happy and inspiring and amazing, despite walking around with a pin that clearly said cancer sucks. She wanted to change things. She wanted to make it better. And I think that changed things for me a bit. It just moved me in a way that general pediatrics didn't. It felt a little bit more like a calling, something like I needed to do. And I think it just rolled from there quite quickly, actually. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting. And, and uh, hematology, oncology always moved me. It's different, but it's a lot like neonatology in that there's emotional highs and very emotional lows. You've been given so many accolades on how you communicate, how you speak to your patients. And it really shows when you give your valuable lessons to these young residents. Was there someone in during your training, either as a resident or a fellow, 
or maybe earlier on that you looked at? Because there were people in my past, I told you about the horrible story when the doctor did it so coldly. But, you know, that doctor was extremely compassionate. That doctor, he's the opening story in my book. He was one of the most compassionate people that I'd ever known. And yet when he delivered the news, he did it so quickly, I think because he was so uncomfortable to do it. But I've also had some really good role models, some of them in neonatology, some of them in palliative care. And I watched him speak and give bad news or have those difficult conversations. And in the back of my mind, I'm going, wow, that's a golden tongue. Like, I love that phrase. I'm going to steal that. And most of the stuff that I use today, I'll be honest, has been stolen. So is there someone that you remember that you said, wow, I want to, I want to speak like that? Yeah, without a doubt. I had two amazing mentors when I was a fellow, Julia Glade Bender and Linda Granowetter. And I really credit the way I deal with patients and communicate with patients to them. They are two of the smartest, most incredible physicians, women I have ever met. And I I look back and I don't, while there were so many things and so many words and so many phrases that they used with patients, I don't think it was about the words so much as about their presence. And, you know, I used to tease Julia when we'd be in the workroom, she was all over the place and doing a million things and distracted. But when she got in that room with the patient, she was there. Nothing else mattered. She wasn't in a rush to leave. She was truly in that moment with them. And I remember she had a young patient who was critically ill, was dying. And Julia just sat by the bedside with that mother and talked to her and held her hand and listened to her and really absorbed what that mother's fears were. And got her to a different place, a different place of never acceptance, but of understanding. And the same thing with Linda. I have clear memories of sitting in Linda's office with a patient that I know Linda and I think of often and will never, ever, ever forget. And I just remember Linda looking at those parents not as a physician, but as a human. And really feeling their pain and absorbing their pain. And I think that alone changes the conversation. Because I think while so many people remember the words and they remember little things that we say, they also just remember us being together. And I think that goes a long way, you know. I don't think most of us are in medicine. Yes, we enjoy the science and we enjoy, you know, learning about biology and all of the other things, but we're really in medicine because we want to help people. It's not about being a doctor. It's about taking care of each other. And so when I saw Linda and Julia work, that's what they were about. That's what they are about. And that always stuck with me and it changed me. That's an excellent point. The word presence is a word that keeps coming up during this podcast. I don't know if you're familiar with a book called I'm Here, but we had a few weeks ago a guest. His name is Marcus Engel. 
And Marcus Engel has an incredible story. If you haven't heard the podcast, please go back and listen to it. But Marcus was in a car accident when he was 17 years old. He was hit by a drunk driver, went blind instantly, had uh, facial fractures and ended up being in, in the hospital for almost two years. And Marcus has the story that when he was in the trauma bay, they're putting in chest tubes, they're trying to intubate someone who literally barely has a face. They had to do a cricoid split. And Marcus only remembers that he was blind. He couldn't see. There's all this stuff going on. And one woman grabbed his hand and said, Marcus, I'm here. And he didn't find out who that woman was for another 20 years. But it changed his life forever. And that's the exact word that he uses, presence. And I agree with that totally. But it's about being there. And I think that if we can learn one thing from this episode of podcast, it is that, is that physicians are all compassionate people. I truly believe that. That's why we went into medicine. But no one wants to be the bearer of bad news. And we're all uncomfortable doing it to a certain extent. And I think when we're uncomfortable doing that, we tend to rush through it and want to get in and get out. Now, Michelle, I've done a lot of Breaking Bad News programs, and sometimes when we do the videotape filming with uh, professional actors, the young doctor, and we've even done senior doctors, will just come out and say, my name is Dr. Orsini, you have cancer. And I'll say, when we do the video review, I'll say to the doctor, why were you so abrupt? And he or she will say, well, that's what I was taught. I was told get it over with and get out of there. And so we're fighting decades of bad teaching. And I'm so glad that you had mentors that made you who you are today. And I think together, along with other people, hopefully we can change that. But the word presence, what a great word. And I think that's probably going to be number one on the top of things that you need to do when you're having difficult conversations, just be present. It doesn't have to be a medicine, right? Someone could be a friend who lost a loved one, someone who just got a divorce, other things, other difficult conversations in our lives. We have some guests who are going to speak about getting fired from their workplace. You know, there's a lot of bad things that happen to people. It doesn't have to be health related. But as a friend, people say, what should I say? Well, maybe all you should do is just say you're sorry and sit there. And that's probably the best advice. So thank you for that. That's great. I want to ask you about the particular challenges of the as they say, tweener or teenager, they tend to handle things differently, right? So teenagers, although they might understand cancer, maybe they're in denial or maybe they're a little on the young side to understand. I mean, telling a five-year-old is a whole different skill set. What about that 12-year-old, 13-year-old? Are there any special advice that you can give to someone who has to speak to a 12-year-old about cancer? So I think one of the biggest mistakes that we make in medicine, whether it's in oncology or any other field, or even frankly in parenting, is that we underestimate our children. I think we underestimate our children, whether they're five years old or 25 years old. And we tend to think that they can't understand or handle the information. We're afraid of telling them things. You know, I've had friends say, well, I don't want to tell my 
12 year old daughter this because she'll be afraid because she won't be able to handle it because she'll freak out to a certain extent they're right the kids might freak out you know they might get hysterical they might cry but that's normal and that's appropriate and that's okay that's a human emotion but the point is that kids can also heal and part of the process of getting them to the other side is allowing them to have those emotions, allowing them to be scared, to be angry, sometimes to be in denial. I think it just depends on the kid. I've seen 12-year-old kids who say, okay, I have leukemia, let me get back to my video games now. And I've seen other 12-year-old kids who say, oh, I have leukemia, well, what type? And what type of chemotherapy are you giving me? And how long will I be in the hospital? And what are the names of all my physicians? It's so variable. I, I think more than the tweens, the young adults are the ones that I've really struggled with. I think tweens are still used to being taken care of. They're used to being with their parents. They're used to being fed information. I think the young adults, the 19, 20, 23-year-olds are the ones that for me have been the most challenging, but also the most rewarding population. You know, their lives are interrupted at such a crucial stage when they're leaving the nest when they're becoming independent. And then in many ways, at least in oncology, or when someone's diagnosed with a chronic illness, we take away that independence. We completely interrupt and arrest their development at a certain stage. So I think that's the population probably more than the tweens that I've struggled with. I think the tweens these days are so knowledgeable. They're so connected. They very quickly develop amazing support systems. We have a young girl in our community who was recently diagnosed with leukemia, and she very quickly came out on social media and announced to her friends, this is what's going on. I'm going to lose my hair, but it's going to be okay. And so I think the way they communicate has changed. But I think maybe that helps them. I think they're able to find resources that even 10 years ago, weren't available to them. My niece, who was an ex-premature baby, and then she got through that in Marstown, and then 17 years later, finds out she has lymphoma. And they had to do reconstruction on her neck, and she went through chemotherapy. And I interviewed her. She became a instructor for Breaking Bad News. I got her because she was in nursing school. And now I'm so proud she's an oncology nurse in Cincinnati. But she came to a Breaking Bad News program as a student instructor. And I said, you have such a wealth of knowledge because you speak from a personal point of view. And I asked her during an impromptu interview, I'm trying to get her on this podcast because I'm telling you, you'd be blown away. And, and I'm so proud of her. I still cry when I, when I think of her. But I asked her about her hematologist, oncologist who took care of her at CHOP. And I said, what do you remember about her? Because she was 17. And, and she said, what I remember most about my oncologist is that she said, I am not going to forget that you're 17 and that you have things to do. And so we're going to make sure you go to your prom. 
And if you need to skip a session or skip a chemotherapy, we're going to do that. And you're going to live your life and you're going to get through this. And you can hear my voice cracking because I'm so proud of her. She got through it. She went to her prom with no hair. Her boyfriend also shaved his head and she had a great outlook on life. And now she moved to Cincinnati because believe it or not, where she went to nursing school, she tried to get several jobs as an oncology nurse, but you know, there's a long waiting list for that. I said to her, I said, Lauren, tell them that you, you've been through this. And so she is a pediatric oncology nurse in Cincinnati right now. I'm so proud of her. But that's what she remembers the most about her oncologist saying, I'm going to let you be a teenager. And I'm sure if you can comment on that, I'm sure that's so important to them. Yeah. So it sounds like you have a lot to be proud of about Lauren. She's been through a lot. It's pretty amazing that, again, a young person can recover the way they do and go on to do really tremendous things with their lives. One of the things I always tell parents when I meet them, whether it's a parent of a kid with cancer or a parent of a kid with sickle cell disease, which I saw plenty of and I think has its own challenges. But one of the things I always try to stress to parents is that being a kid comes first. That's their job. Their job is to have fun. Their job is to go to school. Their job is to see their friends. Having cancer is a side gig, if you will. (laughs) You know, that comes second. And I think we always have to remember that, that without the beauty and the happiness in life and without those wonderful moments, the rest of it doesn't matter. You know, we have to keep in mind, what are we doing this for? We're doing this so that, like you say, they can go to their prom, so that they can see their friends, so that they can go to a barbecue. And I fully agree with those people down at CHOP. Those docs down there do a great job. They've got it right. We have to prioritize normalizing life for these kids as much as possible. Life won't be the same. But it will be, as someone always said at Morristown, it will be a new normal. It'll be a different kind of normal. But that involves all of the milestones, whether they're graduations or communions or bat mitzvahs. They may not happen in the same way, but we have to find a way to make them happen. And when they can't happen or they don't happen on time, We have to really acknowledge the sadness in that. We have to, we have to again feel their pain and relate to their pain, not blow it off. I think that's one of the things that we're seeing in Corona right now. You know, that kids are so sad about missing things. And it's very easy to say, okay, it's not a big deal. You're missing something. But there is sadness in that because for a child, missing an event, missing a milestone is a big deal and it is a big disappointment. So it's okay to be sad for a moment. The, the work 
isn't in not being sad. The work is in healing from being sad and in getting over being sad and recovering from that. And so I think whether you're a pediatric oncologist or you're a parent or a friend, the goal is the same. It's to be with somebody in their emotion and to help them process it so they can recover and get to the other side. And not let it define you of who you are. We talked about communication. And in my line, there's a lot of emotions. There's a lot of babies who are dying, who are very sick. And they stay in my hospital, you know, sometimes 30, 60, 90, 100 days, these premature babies are with us. And I have a lot of emotional times with the parents. But in between that, it's very important for me to come off as a genuine person. When I teach about patient experience and how to use communication, the patients and the patient's families need to know you as Dr. Nair, who's from New Jersey, who, you know, is a person, not just their doctor. And doctors need to remember that that's a person on the other side. This is going to lead me to the integrative medicine part of what you do. But it's important, correct, to start off the conversation by asking them, how's school? What's going on? Instead of all business. And one of the problems that medicine has right now, in my belief, is that we are pushed so much that we become very task-oriented as physicians and nurses. And that's really affected the patient experience. We have 25 patients to see. We have to write notes. We have to move on. And I discuss in my book how you can sit down, find something that's common in someone. Maybe you love reading. So if you find someone whose parents reading a book when you walk in to comment on that book and tell them about the last book that you read, especially if they're a teenager, it takes their mind off of it. You know, we don't want it to be all business. It's important, but you're a person too, correct? I try to be a person. My kids might not always agree. But I think we see in my field, we see people that we feel that that's just the parent of the baby who's the 29-weeker. And I discuss the importance of finding commonality with people in every day and with every single patient. For instance, I'm down in Orlando now, but every now and then I will see a patient. And when I go to call the mother's cell phone number, it's 973. And that is an instant bond with that family because I can meet that family and say, 973 area code, that's where I'm from. And the patient's family lights up. He's one of us. With nothing to do with race or background or whatever, just the fact that we both lived in New Jersey, or I'm lucky enough to see a parent and during a very difficult time over the course of 30, 60 days, maybe they might be wearing a Yankee hat. Or there's a book that I used to read and finding that bond. And if you go back to the story of my niece, Lauren, she bonded with that doctor because her doctor came up as a friend and a teammate, and we're in this together. And I think that's what medicine is all about, right? Yeah, I completely agree on so many levels. You know, I'll tell you a brief story. When I was a fellow, one of my very first patients at Columbia was a little girl. She was a very, very, very religious Jew from upstate New York. And I will never forget, I went down to see her in the ER. And I said to the family, Hanukkah was coming up. 
And I said to them, oh, you must be so excited. Hanukkah is coming up. And the mother looked at me and she said, oh, you're Jewish? I said, oh, yes. And we started a whole conversation. And I told her where I lived. And they lived in a very isolated community of very religious Jews. We really, in many ways, had nothing in common. But that was my way of crossing a barrier. And it started a relationship that lasted for years, long after I left Columbia. They taught me about their community. I taught them about my community. Yes, I I treated her leukemia, but it was so much more than that. We developed a relationship. And, you know, when I was a fellow and a resident, one of the messages, usually unspoken, but sometimes spoken also, was that you have to maintain a professional barrier and that you shouldn't cross those boundaries. And I was always so afraid of crossing those boundaries. Did I cross the boundary? Did I cross the boundary? I wasn't sure as a young physician where that line was, but I was so fearful that if I crossed it, that if I became too personal with families, I was risking something. And as I moved on in my career, I found the opposite was true, that the more I gave of myself personally, and the more I crossed boundaries, and that's not to say don't be professional. I think that's a different thing. You always have to be professional. You are a physician. You need to be a leader. But when you let people into your lives, they let you into theirs. And I think that was what sustained me as a physician. That was the beauty of my job. That was the heart and soul of the work, especially with the young people, you know, the young adults. You talk about walking into the room and asking about what's going on. I never, I shouldn't say never because I'm sure I did. But I tried not to walk in the room and say, are you taking your medicines? You're getting this Mm -hmm. chemo today. You're getting that today. I tried to walk in the room and ask an open-ended question. How are you doing? What's going on in your life? Tell me about school. And I found that it changed our relationships. I I'm so blessed that I have a number of young adults from my job who've stayed in touch with me. And you talking about your niece, it makes you cry. It it makes me a little verklempt, a little, you know, emotional to think about how those patients have really become friends. And I think by crossing those boundaries, it allowed me to be a better physician. I'll give you one more example. I took care of a young adult. He had leukemia and we became very close. And when he relapsed, he didn't want to get therapy. He was so angry. And I understood that. He had a hard time. We had interrupted his life. He had so much going on. But because I had taken the opportunity to get to know him and his mom and his girlfriend, We were able to sit down and have one of the most 
emotional conversations I've ever had in my career. But we listened to him. We just sat with him and he cried and he was angry and he yelled. But thank God he decided to go ahead and he decided to continue with his his therapy. And he's doing great now. He's back in school. He's living on his own. He's amazing. I speak to him all the time. But I do wonder if I hadn't crossed those boundaries, would we have been able to have that conversation? Would we have been able to be that open with each other? And I don't know. I just don't know the answer to that, but I'm grateful that we were. And I think that's the benefit of opening yourself up to people and to learn about who they are, not as a patient, but as a person. I would make two comments on that. First of all, you're exactly right. The patient and the patient's family, and right now, Dr. Nair's crying, so I just want everyone to know that. And the reason I want them to know that is that that's what medicine's all about, right? Those bonds that we make through the years. And and I got emotional about my niece and you get emotional about your patients. I still receive Christmas cards. I think we're going on now. There's one family, 14 years, that I receive a Christmas card from a premature baby who died. And to me, that is one of the things I'm most proud of. Not that she died, but that that family holds me in their heart. Even in the tragedy, they could have been very angry. You didn't save my baby. But we really bonded. And to get a Christmas card from her 14 years later is just one of the things I'm most proud of. So another great teaching point here is that it's okay to cross those boundaries. In fact, I think it's preferable. The patients and the families will always know that you're the doctor. And I think that some of us make mistakes into thinking that if I cross the boundaries, they'll forget that I'm the doctor. And that's not true. They'll respect you even more. In my book, It's All in the Delivery, I go over the five principles of patient experience. And number one is called It's Hard to Fire Your Best Friend. And the point of that whole section is find the commonality, build the rapport, cross the lines a little bit, and you will be their best friend. And who doesn't need a best friend, especially during these critical conversations, right? I mean, that's, that's what they need. They need a friend. They, need, they know you're the expert in the room. They respect you and they'll respect you more when they realize that you are a real person. Sometimes just going in the room and saying, my five-year-old just wouldn't go to school today makes you a real person. You know, you bond because they say, well, this is a real person. This is not just a, a doctor who thinks that I'm leukemia or is calling me by my disease. So another great teaching point for the audience. Before we go, Michelle, I want to talk about your integrative medicine. So you made that change. And I, I kind of know just from speaking to you why you did that, but I want you to talk about why you decided to, you had a very successful practice treating hematology oncology patients, but decided to, I want to be even better and go back to school for integrative medicine. So tell me about that transition and how that happened. Sure. So. It was a slow journey. In my personal life, I had struggled with some chronic pain issues, some GI issues, and to be honest, wasn't quite finding the answers that I was looking for in traditional medicine. 
And so I started asking questions on a personal level. I am very blessed. I found some amazing practitioners. I really think of them as healers in my life, physical therapists, massage therapists, acupuncturists, yoga instructors, amazing people with a whole different skill set than I had learned about in medical school and in my training. And at the same time that I was on that personal journey, professionally, I found that I was opening myself up a little more. And as I did that, I was being confronted with different questions, questions I didn't know the answers to. Questions like, my kid is getting chemotherapy and I don't think I should give them sugar anymore. What's the right thing to do? Or my kid has nausea, but I don't want to medicate them all the time. What else can I do? Questions that I didn't know how to answer. And so I started looking for the answers. And my personal and professional paths, I think, really came together in that way. And as I started looking, I found that integrative medicine is the framework to answer those questions. So I think people think of integrative medicine as being kind of hokey, witchcrafty, weirdness. That's not at all what it is. And that's what I love about it. It is really a framework for, in fact, many of the things we've talked about. In my training, one of the things we've talked the most about is forming relationships, how to communicate with people. That's really the basis and the foundation of integrative medicine. The idea is to harness the body's ability to heal. So it's not a replacement for traditional medicine. It's a way to enhance traditional medicine, a way to enhance ourselves, to focus on the mind, the body, and the spirit. And so for me, I think it was a very natural progression into this type of medicine. And for a number of reasons, it was the time. It was the time to leave my job. It was the time to take on new challenges, different challenges, to learn different skills. And so everything just kind of collided and came together at the right time. So here I am. It was without a doubt the most difficult decision I've ever made in my life. I love pediatric hematology oncology more than anything. I am so grateful to all of the patients and their families that I've met, but it was time personally for a change and this felt like the right one. One of our previous guests, Kathy Cabrino, who had a life-changing moment when she changed from being a big financial person to a coach for women. I think her quote was, you know, when you're not sure what to do, the universe steps in. And it sounds like that's what happened to you, that everything came together. And I can see in your face, this is audio only, but for the audience, I can see in your face how you light up when you speak about integrative medicine. So it sounds like you found your calling and you're happy with it. Yeah, my second calling. Your second calling. (laughs) 
So you opened up Olive Tree and that just opened up in April? Yeah. So a couple months ago, I decided why not in the middle of a pandemic, I'll start a new business. So I opened up. <laughs> I opened up Olive Tree to telehealth patients only. And my now that things have calmed down, my physical office space in Springfield, New Jersey should be ready in about a month. It's uh, really, really excited. It's a beautiful, quiet, sunny space. And I really want it to be a place where people feel safe where they feel safe to express themselves, to ask questions, to talk about what they need so often. And, you know, by necessity, so often many medical offices are crowded, they're busy, they're sterile. We walk in, we have, you know, two minutes with the physician to ask all of our questions. I really want this to be a different kind of experience. I want people to be able to sit in a comfortable chair, have a cup of tea, and to take a breath. You know, I always joked, one of our amazing massage therapists at Marstown used to say to me, Michelle, breathe, just breathe, just breathe. And I would joke around with her and say, oh, God, leave me alone with the breath already. But she's right. You know, I want people to just take a minute for themselves so that we can really have a meaningful and productive conversation about how to improve their lives, how to make things better, how to get to a better place. So I'm very excited. I'm very hopeful. I'm looking forward to this next stage, this next journey. That's fantastic. As a osteopathic physician, that integrative medicine component has been kind of pushed into me since I was, you know, first entered medical school. And so I think it's so important. It's something that's up and coming. I think more and more people are realizing that medicine is not about just giving medicine, that there's a whole body approach and you have to treat the mind, the body and the spirit. And so I love the way you smile when you talk about that. And um, I'm so blessed that you agreed to come on this podcast. We accomplished our goal of inspiring and teaching, and I knew we would. So I want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been really great. Thank you, Tony. This was really an honor. If you want to find out more information, you can contact me at theorsiniway.com. If you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes, please go ahead, hit subscribe, leave a review. It's very, very important. And anytime you want to refer someone to the podcast as a guest, please let me know. Again, thank you to the audience. And I will see you again next Tuesday. Michelle, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Tony. This was great. Take care. Bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at theorsiniway.com.